please grab a Bible and open it up to John 19. We're going to be in the Gospel of John mostly today. John chapter 19. In the ancient Near East, which is what we call the area around where Jesus was born, lived and died, in that area, uh, when people were telling stories or writing things, oftentimes the most important thing in that story or in that book or in that writing was the first thing that the person says and the last thing the person says. In that culture, first things and last things are very important. In fact, books, scrolls, writings, documents, they didn't have titles back then. There was no such thing as a title. So they would write the first sentence on the cover or on the outside of the scroll as the title. And so the first thing that is said is really, really important. The last thing somebody says is really, really important in that culture, and therefore that's true in the Bible, too. We need to pay special attention to first things and last things. And so today we are going to look at the last thing Jesus says on the cross and the first thing Jesus says when he rises from the dead, which is in John 19 and John 20. Uh, John 19, verse 30 This verse will be familiar to you because we talked about the first half. When Jesus had received the sour wine, the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his his head and gave up his spirit. So Jesus said, it is finished. And then he died. So what was finished is the question. That's the last thing Jesus says before he died. Tetelestai in Greek, one word. Tetelestai. It is finished. Last word of Jesus before he died. So what's finished? What's he talking about? Well, what did Jesus come to do? What was his mission? Why was he here? That's what he finished, right? He finished what he was here to do. What was he here to do? You all know a lot of these verses. There's tons of them. I'm only going to do six. John 1.29. This is John the Baptist. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that is one of the things Jesus came to do. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's that one sheep we were talking about earlier. Mark 10.45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so ransom is somebody's kidnapped you or holding you hostage, and that person pays to get you back. So that's the analogy there. We're held captive to sin. Jesus and the devil, Jesus pays to get us back. First Timothy 1.15. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. So there's a theme here, right? First John 3.5. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. Took away our sins and the penalty thereof. First John 3.8, just a couple verses later, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He came to destroy the works of the devil. So those are some of the things Jesus came to do. He came to do a lot of things. So he had a big mission. There was a lot of things down here, but it all pointed to the cross. That was the culmination of everything Jesus was here to do. And on the cross, he said, it is finished. So it was done. He did it. And then he rose, and then other things come to us because of that. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we get a whole bunch of stuff. Everything that we get from God, essentially, comes through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so on the cross, that last word, he says, is tetelestai. It is finished. Now, it's a really interesting word, actually, in Greek. We have 
thousands and thousands and thousands of examples of ancient Greek texts from this time that use that word. Because it is a used wor uh, word used in contracts. Contracts and covenants. And so like you hire a contractor to fix your basement or remodel your basement, right? We just put in a bathroom and a bedroom in the basement. So I'm not going to speak negatively about the fact that it was supposed to be done at Thanksgiving and is now just barely done by Easter. <laughs> but praise the Lord, it is done. He is risen in our basement. And so we have a contract. And at the end of the contract, oftentimes in the United States, we, we write like paid in full or something like that, right? The contract is done. Maybe we stamp it. Bam, paid in full. The contract's done. Everybody fulfilled their parts. All the debts were paid. Contract is done, paid in full. That's what we do. And that's what they used the word tetelestai for. Tetelestai was written, scrolled across the bottom of contracts that were done. So it means it is finished. It has been completed. Perfection has been achieved. All the debts have been paid. That's what tetelestai means. And it's, we have tons and tons of examples of it. And that is the last word Jesus says on the cross. Very interesting to me. It is finished. So what is finished? Well, we talked a couple of weeks ago about the Last Supper and how Jesus took the cup like we just celebrated for communion. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, which is in my blood. Okay? And so Jesus' blood on the cross is the blood of the new covenant. And that is what Jesus is finishing. That's what he is ratifying. That's what he is stamping. The new covenant has been accomplished. So what's a covenant? Because a covenant is more than just a contract. An ancient Near East covenant was a ritual. It was a sacred rite. Remember, ancient Near East, like let's talk about Abraham. Okay, They didn't like write stuff down. right? So if you're going to make a contract or a covenant with someone, most likely neither of you can read any language because there's only a few written languages at the time. So you don't have a piece of paper contract. You have to do something else to make a covenant, and that was a, a ritual. Stephanie, I'm going to quiz you. Okay. <laughs> I, I set the mic there. She was probably like, why is there a microphone here? Ready for the pop quiz. Pop quiz! <laughs> what did ancient Near East people say when they were going to make a covenant? They used a certain verb. What was the verb? Cut. To cut a covenant. Cut. They said, let us cut a covenant. Now, why did they say that word? She took a covenant theology class at Bethel. Don't worry, I'm not going to call on you for random quizzes. So relax. <laughs> well, I, could, I know I could ask Bob, and I know I could ask a lot of you. But, uh, so don't be worried that I'm going to call you. So why did they say to cut a covenant? What was that about? Uh, because they would cut an animal into various pieces for the covenant ritual. That's right. So a covenant ritual always had to have a sacrifice. There had to be blood for a covenant to be ratified. Had to be blood. Something had to die to make the covenant possible. Okay? This, a lot of people today, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? I don't understand. This is part of why. Because it's a covenant. And these ancient covenants, this is how they did it. It involved blood. It involved a sacrifice. And so what, what would they do? They'd chop the animal in half or in bits. And do you remember what they would do then? Uh, they would the two covenant parties or people that were mm -hmm. making a covenant would walk through the pieces of the dead animal, um, basically saying, if we break the covenant, this is what will become. Of us. That's exactly right. 
So may it be done unto me is what it means. So you cut it in half or in bits, and you line them up like this, and both parties, you walk through it once, twice, a couple times. And that ritual is, may this happen to me if I break this covenant. I'm giving the other party the right to chop me to bits if I break this covenant. So you see, this is a serious thing. This is not a pinky swear, okay? This is as serious as it gets, okay? Now, in the old covenant, and there were other things involved in covenants, and uh, there was an exchange of gifts so that you could remember it and all that kind of stuff. Um, And sometimes they would then build like a cairn or a big pile of stones or something like that in that particular place to remember it so that when your grandchildren come by, you could be like that pile of stones represents the covenant between us and Moab or whatever, or between me and our neighbor that we won't steal each other's sheep, whatever it was. (coughs) But these were big things, and they were not done lightly. Anything else about a covenant you would like to mention that you think is relevant? Well, it's a huge topic. (laughs) It is. Uh, Give me half a semester's worth. Yeah. Um, Basically, it's the most similar thing we have today is a wedding. So for ancient covenant cultures, you had witnesses, you have witnesses at a wedding. Um, like Nate said, exchange of a gift, possibly. Um, sometimes they'd change their name mm-hmm. to symbolize the covenant. Um, there was always some sort of physical reminder as well. Um, so in a wedding, it's generally the ring. Um, they're awesome. Yes, covenants are awesome. And so at the Last Supper, Jesus is beginning to institute this new covenant. Now, in the Old Covenant, there were sacrifices, right? There was blood, and that was meant to appease um, the wrath of God, and God pretended that animal sacrifices meant something to him, even though he didn't. And he says that in the New Testament, that that doesn't really actually do anything in reality, but so that they could understand that they were in a covenant with God, that continued to happen. Does that make sense? Jesus, however, was the real sacrifice. That's what everything was pointing to. And so the difference, there's, there's a lot of difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, okay? The things to remember are the New Covenant's way better. <coughs> and the sacrifice that happened, the blood that's required for a covenant, was obviously the blood of Jesus, right? And that's what he says in the Last Supper. This cup is the New Covenant, which is in my blood. He was the sacrifice. But the real difference between the New Covenant that we are a part of, and all other covenants, is that instead of one party fulfilling one part of the covenant and the other party fulfilling the other part of the covenant, which is usually how it goes, God came and fulfilled everything in the covenant. So that there is no quid pro quo, tit for tat, you do this, I do that. There is, that doesn't exist in the new covenant. Jesus fulfilled the whole thing. And so Jesus made the sacrifice and symbolically walked through it to death, to hell, to make the covenant complete for us, such that we don't have to and, in fact, cannot do anything to try to ratify that covenant. That's the difference. It's a huge, huge difference. It's not we do this and he does that, and if we do enough or if we do it right, then we can enter into the new covenant, hooray. No, Jesus did a once and for all covenant and invited everybody to join. It's nuts, okay? He did the covenant. He cut the covenant, okay? He cut that covenant, and he said, now you can all join. And all we have to do is bow the knee. 
We just received that sacrifice that he made. That's it. That's not a work. There's nothing we have to do, right? We're saved by grace. And that is what is incredible about this covenant. Because usually the covenant was, I have to supply X number of troops, and if you're invaded, I will help you, and I'll give you one of my daughters to marry you, and like all these different things. And all the requirements of the covenant were all fulfilled by Jesus in his death on the cross. And that's why he says, tetelestai. It is finished. The covenant is done. Bam. Paid in full. Complete. Perfect. Everything is finished. It's, it's an amazing thing. And that's the last thing he says. And then he dies. It's very significant. John. As one also went to Bethel, it was actually the perfect tense. It is in the perfect tense. Right. Exactly. So it's not past tense, meaning this happened once. It's perfect tense, meaning this happened and the effects are ongoing. That's tetelestai. It is finished and it will always be finished. You can't unfinish it. Okay? And why is this so important? The perfection of tetelestai? It's important because we cannot undo the blood of Christ in our own lives. Your sin doesn't ruin the covenant. Your sin doesn't separate you from God anymore like it did in the Old Covenant. This is hugely vastly important because in the Old Covenant, sin separates us from God. Uh, Isaiah 59.2. Your iniquities have separated you from God. It's the magnets, right? Children's sermons, the real sermon, as all pastors know. This is the Old Covenant, right? Sin separates us from God. We cannot be together. The New Covenant flips that around. And now, because of Jesus, our sins are covered, paid for, it is done, it is finished, tetelestai, perfectly, forever. And therefore, when you sin tomorrow, and you will, I'm not being negative, I'm just realistic. When you sin on your way home, because someone cuts you off and you judge them, and then you do the look over, because you want to see their face so you can judge them better in your head. I'm not the only one who does that, am I? Trying really hard not to. When I drive, God's like, don't look, don't look, don't look. And I'm like, but I have to. I knew it. I'm getting better, but it's a struggle. Okay, so on the way home when we sin, it doesn't go, oops, you flipped back now. No, we're changed. We're different. We're recreated. We can't undo our recreation and become normal human again. It's not possible. We can't undo the new covenant because we didn't do anything to make the new covenant. If it wasn't regular covenant, like the rest of the Near East covenants, if we broke it, it'd be broken. Now there's problems. Now there's war, right? But not anymore because God fulfilled everything about the new covenant. And so we can't undo it. Jesus' blood is stronger than your sin. Amen? We all know that because we've been forgiven. And yet when we sin, when we mess up, many of us in our heads are still like, oh, I ruined it. I broke it somehow. And it needs to be redone. I need to be re-cleansed. I need to get right with God. That's not true. You're still like this. Okay? Also at the Last Supper, Jesus, he washed the disciples' feet. Right? He's like, you're already clean. I just need to wash your feet. And that is the way it's like in life. We have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. We're in the new covenant. But walking through this world, we just get a bit dirty. Our feet get dirty. Sometimes because we stepped in the wrong place. Think about how dirty it would have been first century. Animals walking everywhere, dirt, things animals do, 
on the dirt as they walk, right? Okay, that, that feet are filthy. So when uh, Mary of Bethany wept and wiped Jesus' feet with her hair, it specifically says he hadn't washed his feet yet, which was against Jewish custom. You wash your feet before you go in the house because you stepped in poop today. Guaranteed. Okay. <laughs> she dries it, wipes it with her hair. Whoa. Okay. It's, it's a big deal. And so Jesus washes their feet. And that's all we have to do. When we sin, when we step somewhere we shouldn't, when we mess up, we just confess and we receive the forgiveness that has already been given to us through the cross. Amen? That's foot washing. We just confess and we move on. That's it. It doesn't break the covenant. But there is a need for confession. Confess your sins and he'll be faithful and just to forgive it. But the covenant is still intact. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus anymore. Under the old covenant, uh, you mess up and you're in trouble. That's it. But under the new covenant, you mess up, you confess, you're forgiven. The relationship is not broken. Okay? The relationship isn't broken. The fellowship might be a little messed up, mostly because we negatively, uh, wrongly feel shame. So what I mean by that is we're always related to God now. We're related by blood, by the blood of Jesus Christ. We've been adopted into his family. So we will always be related to God because we're his kids, right? So the relationship never changes from our sin. But the fellowship can change, and that's mostly because we sin, so we back away from God. And the problem is we don't uh, confess, repent, and go right back. Instead, we go like this, and then when we, maybe next time we pray or do something spiritual, the devil's like, really? You think you can pray now after all the thoughts you were just having? You, you think you can come close to God? You know how you really are. Who are you? to try to draw close to God. We've all heard these lies, all of us, okay? And the reason we believe those lies is because it sounds like the truth. We know how we are, <laughs> and we know what we've done, but we forget that the cross happened, and the new covenant happened, and it's all done. It's all past tense. To tell us that, it's finished. And it continues to be finished. And so when those thoughts come into our head, when the devil comes and lies to us, he always wants to keep us from relationship with God. That is the devil's prime goal in life, is to keep you from relationship, from fellowship with God. You should always be trying to draw closer to God because he's always trying to draw closer to you. But we are the ones who step back, not God, in terms of fellowship. And he doesn't want us to do that anymore. Okay? Um, in the Old Covenant, there was separation. Separation because of sin and the temple slash tabernacle and the way they set it up is, I think, probably the best visual explanation of that. So you have, like, the outer courts, and then it was separated with the inner courts and separated again with the holy place and separated again with the most holy place or the holy of holies, okay? So, and certain people could go here but not anywhere else, and then other people could go here but not anywhere else, other people could go here, only the high priest could go here. So it was separation after separation after separation. It was like separation ad absurdum to get it through people's head that this is what the covenant is and you can't come. And you're lucky that I allow you to even like exist <laughs> and have this covenant with you. When Jesus died on the cross, what happened in the temple? The veil was torn in two. That veil, that final separation, because even within the Holy of Holies, there's a veil in the middle. <laughs> separation, 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 separation. It's like, we did it. We can't get to God. At Jesus' crucifixion, God himself rends that veil in half. He tore it in two. And now we have that access to God. There is no separation anymore. 
There is no separation anymore for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's incredible. And so God always wants us to be drawing closer to him. The devil's always trying to keep us away. So don't believe those lies. You're secure in the new covenant. You're connected. Okay? That magnet is strong. And he made the covenant. He's the only one who could break it. And he won't. Because he promised us he would. Okay? Important, important stuff. Um, Anybody have any questions on that? This is something that I think we all know, but I feel like sometimes we don't live it out. When it comes time for us to try to draw closer to the Lord, we don't do it because we feel shame of some kind. Shame is not of God, ever. Conviction of sin is of God. That's the Holy Spirit saying, eh, no, you stepped in something. <laughs> you stepped in something. Let's, let's clean that off and, and keep going down the path, right? But shame is not of God. And so if there's a reason or something keeping us from drawing closer to the Lord, maybe, maybe we were wounded somewhere in the past and we need healing. Uh, who knows what it is? It could be a number of different things. But let's try to remember and keep it in our minds to not let anything keep us from drawing closer to the Lord. It's the most important thing in our life. It's why Jesus came and died and rose again so that we could become closer to him. So last words of Jesus to tell us die. Let's look at the first words of Jesus after he rose, which is the next chapter... And so, ladies go to the tomb, disciples go to the tomb. This is John 20. Let's look at, starting with, let's start with verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she went, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. She said to them, they have taken, or sorry, one at the head, one at the feet, they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And now move down to verse 15, or uh, 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Interesting, right? He didn't look like he used to look before. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? First thing Jesus said after he rose. Woman, why are you weeping? And then he says, whom are you seeking? So this is what he says. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? So the very first word Jesus says when he rises from the dead is woman. Very significant. The first word is very significant, okay? We could do a whole sermon series on why woman was the first word. But certainly part of it, in my opinion, is that Jesus came to break chains, to set captives free. In that culture, women were slaves, essentially. They were property. And I think Jesus, as he rises from the dead, the first thing he says is very intentional. He says, woman. I think Jesus is beginning to set those captives free. And I think there's a lot to dig into there that I would like to dig into. But it's important, and it's super significant. It's the very first thing Jesus says. So he says, woman. And then he says, why do you weep? And whom do you seek? And I think both of these questions are asking more or less the same thing. Um, and I think it goes exactly with what we've been talking about, the last thing Jesus says. I think he's continuing the exact same topic. Why do you weep? Now that Jesus is risen, we have him in our hearts. We're part of the new covenant. We have victory. So Jesus says, why do you weep? 
it's easy to, as we go through life, life is difficult sometimes. It involves a lot of work. Like, actually, we have to labor to get money, to buy food, to live, and all this kind of stuff. And it can be very distracting, this life. And it can start, if we're not careful, to be like, this is my life. My life is I do this stuff, and I go to work, and I do all these things. And that often leads us to feeling a little bit down because that's not fulfilling. And things happen to us in life that make us weep and that pulls our attention away from Jesus. And I think Jesus is reminding us here, hey, why, why do you weep? You have the victory already. Why are you obsessed with your sin? You already have the victory over your sin. Your chains are already broken. You've already been forgiven. Why are you looking down? Why are you weeping? Why are you thinking about yourself? You don't have to do that anymore. Why are we going around saying, woe is me, and feeling sorry for ourselves? No, no, no. Jesus is victorious. He is risen. There is no reason to weep anymore. I'm not saying difficult things don't happen, and there aren't times to mourn. Of course there are. But our overall attitude in life needs to not be negative, not be Debbie Downer, if you ever saw that character on Saturday Night Live, where someone would say something, and she'd say something negative right afterwards, and they'd go, we all know some people like that in our lives. We'll be talking about something nice, and they'll say something that just brings you down, okay? There's a little bit of that in all of us, I think. We wait for other shoes to drop. If two bad things happen, we wait for a third, because we're superstitious, even if we pretend we're not. And that's not, that's not good. That's not the way Jesus wants us to live our lives. He says, why do you weep? Let's not, let's not do that. Don't keep your eyes down. Don't focus on yourself. Look up to Jesus. He's risen from the dead. That's all we need to know. That's all we need to understand. That's all we need to look at. So I think it's an attitude check. And then he says, whom do you seek? And I think this is the same type of question. Who who are you really seeking after in your life? If someone else were to do an audit of your life, would they say you are clearly seeking after Jesus with your life? Or would they say you are clearly seeking after yourself with your life? Everything you do, the time you spend, the money you spend, all of that points to you seeking primarily after your own happiness, your own well-being. And this is another reality check for us, an attitude check for us that Jesus is saying. Why do you weep and whom do you seek? Who are you really seeking after with your life? Are you still seeking after Jesus? Because it's easy, once we realize we're in the new covenant and things are awesome and grace is so wonderful, it's easy to become complacent. And sort of be like, yay, I'm just going to be a happy Christian now and do my own thing and follow the American dream, right? This is a whole sermon series, too. The American dream is anathema to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the opposite. We're not supposed to pursue our own happiness. I'm not saying being happy is bad. I'm not saying it's wrong to make a choice that makes you happy. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that we shouldn't seek ourselves, our own gratification, our own happiness, our own life. Our life shouldn't primarily be about working so that we can get stuff or have fun or do this or do that. Our life is supposed to be focused on Jesus and seeking after him to keep our eyes on him after he rose from the dead. It'd be easy to say, hey, it's done. Hooray. Jesus like, no, keep your eyes on me. Whom are you seeking? I think it all comes back to God's desire 
have us draw closer to him in relationship and in fellowship. Seek after me and keep seeking after me. Don't give it up. Don't stop. Don't get selfish. Don't get complacent. Don't get whatever. But it's easy to do in this life, right? Because we do have to work and we do have to clean the house and we do have to deal with this and that and other stuff, right? It's easy to get distracted. I'm not saying those things are bad, okay? Many of those things are wonderful, but I think we need to keep seeking after Jesus. We just keep him in our mind, keep him in the forefront of what we're doing so that we make sure that what we're doing is following after him and not ourselves because it's easy to do. It's easy to do accidentally. And that will, for me anyway, that has helped me to just continually be drawing closer to the Lord and trying to increase our relationship. And so I make choices that say, "Mm, right now maybe I'd like to do this, but instead I'm going to spend some time in prayer. So I seek God instead of myself, right? Now, I'm not saying you should spend every spare moment of your life in prayer. There's no legalism here, okay? There's no judgment here. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that if we keep our life focused on God, we can allow him to be Lord of our life and help us to make some of those decisions. And some of those decisions will lead us to a kind of life that looks like we're carrying a cross. Because Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. And so obedience is sacrifice, always. Always. And life will involve suffering, always. But we don't have to weep. Because he is victorious already. And that resurrected Christ is in us. And so we are victorious through him. And we can keep seeking him. Anyone have any final questions? Thoughts? Thank you. It's mostly the magnets. That's <laughs> See. How do you say that word again, that final word? Uh, tetelestai. I think that would be the pronunciation. It's the second syllable. Tetelestai. It's just one word. Do you think when you, 15 years as a carpenter, you wrote that a lot? Or is it all? Constantly. Constantly. Thank you. Wait. That's what we want to do now that we have this? Grab that, Steve. Ask the question again because it's a really good question. Don't be afraid. It won't bite you. When Jesus was running his carpentry business, did he use that term at the end? Uh, Constant. Do you think he wrote stuff? Um, Was the populace... See, and that's the thing about contracts, is a lot of people were lettered for that, specifically. And so if you had to deal with contracts and money, you would know how to write that word and how to write this word, and how to write your numbers. So even if people had limited... Even probably Peter had that much. Knew how to write numbers, maybe how to write fish, how to write tetelestai, but that's probably it. And that was still considered unlettered, unlearned, which is what the the Pharisees said about the disciples afterwards. Can I share one one quick thing? This was one that my daughter, um, and maybe you brought this up too, but uh, my daughter was sharing this one with me that that when... uh, when, when they came to the tomb and it was empty and, and the uh, headscarf was folded up there, that that was a tradition in a carpentry shop that when you were done yes. with the job, you folded that up and put it on the job and it was like, it is finished. I, so, I have read that as well. Yeah. So, I mean, I haven't dug real deep into the research myself to verify it's true, but I have read that that's true as well. So a carpenter, a stonemason, whatever, when they finished the job, they would take their sweat rag 
and they would fold it up nicely and leave it there, which was a visual, it is finished. It's the so job cool is that done he kept now. his earthly, the man part yeah. of him. The well, he, see, because he's incarnate. <laughs> yeah. He became one of us. We spoke our language. He followed our customs. He did our stuff, except when he didn't. Yeah. And he broke those rules to set up the new covenant, which is why when he doesn't, it's really significant. That's awesome. And Jesus, I think, would have written or at least heard to tell Stai often in his business. And I wonder if 28-year-old Jesus, every time he finished a contract, was like, oh, Father, when, when am I going to get to start the next part of my ministry? When? When? Is it, is it now? Is it soon? Please, please. Not yet, son. Okay, how about when he's 29? Can I, please. I want to finish it. I desire to finish this new covenant. I desire to bring everyone into our family and let them be adopted by us, by you. That's what I wonder. During that period where Jesus' primary job, which was almost his entire life, Jesus' primary job was to take care of his family. Almost his whole life, his job was to take care of his family. So working to make money to take care of your life and your family isn't bad. That's what Jesus did for almost his entire life. Okay? But his focus in that was on God, but on obeying his father and following his father. I say that just so we don't get confused to be like, work is evil. No, work can be wonderful. Jesus certainly <coughs> did it. Yeah, one last thing, and then. Do you think that, um, did that keep him from, like you said, when his father would it, say. It's on, don't worry. I don't know, is it working? Yeah. That what his father was saying, not yet, did that keep him from witnessing on the job? I mean, he couldn't say he couldn't reveal who he was yet. Could right? He? No, I don't. I don't believe so. I don't believe he could reveal who he was. Even when his mom asked him to make a bunch of wine for people who've been drinking all week, he still hesitated. My time has not yet come. And Mary's response is so beautiful: "Just do whatever he tells you." <laughs> and Jesus, out of obedience to his earthly mom, does his first miracle. And makes roughly 600 bottles of wine. I did the math. For real. Um, It's amazing to me. Um, There's there's a ton in that. That's actually a great great sermon series, too. They did, well, you know, Greece is probably still similar in a lot of ways to a lot of that um, ancient Near East culture. Weddings were usually long affairs, like maybe a whole week, where just about everybody in town came. So that's a lot of wine. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think interesting is Jesus talked about that is, um, I think, emblematic of, I know, there's, there's a trait in that I admire in yep. people, you know, who are seeking someone greater than themselves. They're seeking yes. truth. They're seeking understanding. They're seeking. Yep. And um, um, we live in a world where it seems people presume to know everything or to be um, that they really don't need God, but yeah. somebody will get it all figured out, you know, and will actually become God or something. You yeah. know? But I, there, there's something um, to be admired in the humility that goes with someone who's seeking, you know, in this case, seeking Jesus. He's mm-hmm. asking. He's asking. The woman at the well. Uh, the, those who are kind of curious yes. about life and where they're going. Um, and then even in this case, asking the right person, you know, um, which is to really be admired, you know, that they're yeah. that he's there to answer those questions, mm-hmm. and and, and um, I'm 
a little dismayed with maybe modern society that doesn't seem to look for direction beyond beyond our own understanding. I and, agree. And, and 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 it's it's painful to we see. We think we're self sufficient. Yeah. And we're really not. Yeah. I, th- I think that's a really good point that God is always seeking after that one sheep. So he never stops seeking after the lost. But that doesn't mean we don't have a part to play. We do have to respond to the new covenant. We have to respond to Jesus in order to join up and be, be a part of the new covenant. We do have to respond. God doesn't crash us over the head with salvation and say, boom, against your will, you are saved now. That's not how it works. We have to seek or at least respond. I think of that moment not as a, making a decision for Christ so much as just bowing the knee, just surrendering to Jesus and who, who he is and who he was. But seeking is important. Would Mary have been the first one to speak to Jesus and then go and proclaim the gospel of the risen Lord to the apostles themselves? Would she have been able to do that if she wasn't seeking? No, she was trying to find him. And that's, that's really important. All right, I'm going to pray so we can get to our families. Father God, we cannot thank you enough for sending your son, Jesus, to ratify that new covenant. We thank you that... It is finished, and it was done, and Jesus did it all for us. And that all we have to do is say, yeah, I want in on that, and bow the knee to you. I pray that you would help us to keep it in our minds that it is finished. It's already done. The chains of sin are already broken. We're not bound any longer. Healing, grace, blessing, forgiveness, the fruits of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, all of these are ours now because we're a part of that new covenant. And Jesus won all of those things for us through his death and his resurrection. Help us to keep that in mind, to not be weeping or seeking after the wrong thing, but to be able to be focused on you and to realize that we already have the victory, so we don't need to weep. We already have the victory. Whatever it is we're seeking that we don't think we have in you. Show us, Lord, that we already have it because we have everything. We have been already given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Help us to position ourselves in such a way that we can walk in those blessings, Lord. And if there's a blessing that we get through the new covenant that we're not experiencing right now, I pray that you would give us a revelation, Holy Spirit, on how we can position ourselves differently and better so that we can walk in those blessings that you've already given us. And help us, Holy Spirit, to recognize the voice of the devil who will lie to us and try to keep us from approaching God, do anything he can do to keep us from approaching God. And I pray that seeking after pleasure, personal time, chilling, (laughs) whatever it is we're seeking after of ourselves wouldn't come in the way of our seeking after you and our relationship with you. I pray that for those who need it, you would break the power of entertainment, break the power of seeking after wealth and all other idols that are in our lives, that we'd um, smash those all at your feet, Lord Jesus. Reveal to us... Most of us don't know when this is happening, when we've done this in our lives, when we've set up an idol, when we're starting to seek something other than you. So we need your Holy Spirit to reveal that to us and show us. 
so that we can keep our focus on you and draw closer and ever, ever, ever closer. And so that you can begin to move in our hearts to reach out to those lost sheep so that they can join this amazing new covenant that you made for us. When you were cut and died for us on the cross. We praise you, Lord, that you have risen. And I pray that, I pray that this year we'd remember and think about it every day that you have risen. You have arisen. You won the battle. You accomplished everything you wanted to accomplish. And that exclamation mark at the end of it is finished, that exclamation mark is the resurrection. It is finished, and I'll prove it by coming back. Help us to keep that in mind and remember that we are not powerless, that we are not shackled, that we are not oppressed peasants. We are princes and princesses as heirs of you. And help us to walk into the truth of our identity. And bless us today and this week as we spend time with family and reflecting on all that you've done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.